Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41. We are back in Genesis today. Genesis chapter 41. Uh, we're doing a, a stop and start kind of series through the book of Genesis. And as we continue in our series through uh, this book, we come this morning to Genesis 41. And my goal this morning is to try to cover verses uh, 1 through 45. And the title of the message today is from prison to power, from prison uh, to power. I don't know how many of you uh, may uh, remember this, but back in the 90s, uh, there was a commercial on television for CNR Clothiers. How many of you remember the commercial? Uh, and it, it featured, um, each of the commercials featured a, a montage of men going from being in casual clothes or work clothes uh, to being in a tailored suit. Uh, and while this montage was being shown, a woman's voiceover uh, was singing uh, these words. And I, I was going to sing them for you, but the elders told me not to. Uh, so I will read the lyrics, the theologically deep lyrics of uh, this commercial to you, uh, quote, what a difference a day makes, 24 little hours, what a difference a day makes, and the difference is you, unquote. Uh, if you were a man, the commercial uh, made you want to get your clothes from CNR Clothiers uh, so that maybe you could look as good as the men in the commercial looked. Uh, if you were a woman, the commercial made you want to marry a man who got his clothes from CNR and who could experience the kind of transformations that were featured in the commercial. I have, oddly enough, found myself thinking about uh, this commercial throughout this past week because this chapter is all about transformation essentially in the space of a single Day, The transformation that Joseph experiences in Genesis 41 uh, could blow away anything ever featured in a CNR commercial. At the beginning of the day, uh, we come upon in this chapter, Joseph is a, a prisoner in a dungeon with scraggly hair and prison clothes. And by the end of the day, he is clean shaven and probably completely bald as well, if you like that, that look, uh, and dressed in fine linen, wearing a golden necklace and wearing the Pharaoh's signet ring. And he's riding in the second most impressive chariot in all of the land with an entourage of runners going before him in that chariot, commanding everyone to bow down to Joseph. What a difference a day makes. 24 little hours. And we will see in Joseph's case that the difference maker is God. As he brings Joseph from prison to power in Egypt in the length of one amazing day that we'll study in this chapter. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 the Bible says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And today, at long last, after 13 long years, the proper time for Joseph's exaltation has come. Before we get into the passage for today, let's take just a little bit of time to review um, we saw back in Genesis 37 how Joseph had two dreams when he was 17 years of age that represented his family members bowing down uh, to him. Joseph's brothers already hated him, but after Joseph went to them and shared these two dreams with them, his brothers hated him all the more. And one day their hatred got the best of of them, And they sold Joseph to some Ishmaelite traders who then took him down to the land of Egypt. And shortly after arriving in Egypt, Joseph was sold to a man named Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard. We saw in Genesis 39 how God blessed Joseph 
and in all that he did while in Potiphar's house to such an extent that Potiphar elevated Joseph to be his right-hand man in charge of everything. Unfortunately, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. We looked at that story several weeks ago. Joseph successfully resisted her advances, yet she then falsely accused him of sexually assaulting her. And in response, Potiphar threw Joseph into the prison that was connected to his own house. We saw in chapter 40 how God blessed Joseph in prison to such an extent that the chief jailer watches God's blessing upon this young man, and he ends up elevating Joseph and putting him in charge of all of the other prisoners. Sometime thereafter, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and baker were thrown into that prison, and Joseph was assigned to take care of these two prisoners. One night, the cupbearer and the baker have dreams which Joseph interpreted for them. He told the cupbearer that in three days, he would be restored to office by Pharaoh. And he told the baker that in three days, he would be slain by Pharaoh. Joseph's interpretation of the dreams comes true three days later down to the exact details we saw. The cupbearer was elevated and restored back to the service of Pharaoh and the baker was slain exactly as Joseph had predicted. When Joseph had interpreted the cupbearer's dream, he made a request of him. Listen to what he said to the cupbearer. He says, keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Yet in the very last verse of Genesis 40, verse 23, we are told that after the cupbearer was restored to the service of Pharaoh, that he did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And that's where we left off the last time that we were in Genesis. An innocent man left forgotten in prison. So much for doing the right thing, right? Well, in verse 1 of our chapter today, Genesis 41, we're told that the events recorded in this chapter take place at the end of two full years or two whole years. The narrator wants us to feel something of the huge amount of time this had to have been for Joseph who was left forgotten in prison. Yet at the end of two whole years, some amazing things happen that lead to Joseph experiencing deliverance from prison and exaltation to the second most powerful man in all of the land of Egypt. And this is what we will study today. We'll break down our study in this way. We'll observe seven developments in the story of how God elevates Joseph from prison to power in Egypt in the space of one amazing day. Development number one, we find beginning in verse one, and that is that Pharaoh has two dreams that leave him troubled. Pharaoh has two dreams that leave him troubled. Observe what happens in verse one. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. In other words, ugly and skinny. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. Pharaoh is going to share later in verse 19 that these skinny cows were such as he had never seen for ugliness in all of the land of Egypt. These were the ugliest, skinniest cows that he had ever seen. And they left him with a sense of evil foreboding that something sinister and awful was about to happen. And sure enough, observe the gruesome thing that happens 
in verse 4, the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. None of us has ever seen a cow eat a cow. But that's what happens in Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh was so startled by this that he awoke. He shakes off the dream. And then observe what happens in verse 5. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold... Seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. This particular dream was so vivid to the Pharaoh that he was surprised to awaken and discover that it was only a dream. Both of these dreams start off positive and then end up as nightmares. Both of these dreams feature a similar beginning of health and wholesomeness and then end with the unhealthy eating up the healthy and causing the healthy to disappear. Pharaoh was no interpreter of dreams, but he knew these dreams were a premonition of something ominous. So we're not surprised to read of Pharaoh's response in verse 8. Look what the text says. Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So we have Pharaoh being troubled We have him reaching out for help from not just some, but all of his magicians and wise men whose job it is to help him to know the meaning of things like this. And none of them are able to tell Joseph what these dreams meant. Imagine receiving some dark coded message that you know is a bad omen of something that lies in the future, yet no one can tell you specifically what that message really means. Now, on one level, Pharaoh's dreams seem very basic and simple to interpret. The first dream features the Nile River, which represents the lifeblood, the source of fertility, In the land of Egypt, the dreams also feature cows, which was a common ancient symbol in Egypt of the earth's productive power. And even the cow had religious significance as well. And then there was wheat. So Pharaoh had to know that these dreams are conveying a message about something having to do with the agricultural well-being of the land of Egypt, but as to specifically what these dreams mean and what they're foretelling, Pharaoh did not know. He had enough sense to be troubled by them, but not enough sense to interpret them specifically, and neither evidently did his wise men or magicians. God is withholding the interpretation of these dreams from everyone because he plans to reveal them through Joseph. Anyway, Pharaoh's dreams and the inability of anyone to interpret the dreams awakens a slumbering memory in the mind of Pharaoh's cupbearer. This leads us to the second development in the story of how God brings Joseph from prison to power in Egypt. Number two, the cupbearer remembers and tells Pharaoh about Joseph. Observe what happens beginning in verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. The word translated offenses is the Hebrew word for sin. This chief cupbearer is admitting that his failure to remember Joseph has been a moral failure on his part, and he's confessing it now. 
Then he tells the Pharaoh the story about what Joseph did in prison two years prior to this moment. And he tells this starting in verse 10. Listen to what he says to the Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh was furious with his servants and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them, the dreams, to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He, Pharaoh, restored me to my office, but he, Pharaoh, hanged him, the baker. He's basically saying there's a Hebrew youth in prison right now who knows what you're going to do, Pharaoh, even before you do it. So based on what the cupbearer has just told to Pharaoh, Pharaoh now knows that there is a Hebrew young man in the prison who can interpret dreams that have to do with the Pharaoh. And his interpretations have on at least one prior occasion been shown to be accurate. So upon hearing this confession from the cupbearer, Pharaoh knows exactly what he needs to do. This leads us to the third development in this story of how God brings Joseph from prison to power in Egypt. Number three, Joseph appears before Pharaoh and gives glory to God. Observe what Pharaoh does in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. In all likelihood, the shaving being described here would have involved Joseph shaving his head and his face, according to Egyptian custom. And he would have changed into new clothing that was provided for him, clothing that would have been appropriate for an appearance before the great Pharaoh. And once this is done, Joseph is quickly brought before Pharaoh. Observe what Pharaoh does in verse 15. Once Joseph is brought into his presence, verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. This is actually a remarkable confession coming from Pharaoh. Here is this king. And by the way, Pharaoh normally would have viewed himself as a divine being. Yet here he is confessing the bankruptcy of his own resources to interpret this dream that he has had. I've had a dream, he says, but no one can interpret it. He's confessing this bankruptcy to a Hebrew slave prisoner. And then he says to Joseph, but I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. On one level, there's nothing wrong with what Pharaoh is saying to Joseph about Joseph. And I'm sure it felt flattering for Joseph to hear these words about himself. But observe Joseph's response in verse 16. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph essentially makes three statements here. The first is a humble confession that the ability to interpret dreams is not in him. The second statement is that it is God who gives the interpretation of dreams. In cases like this. And his third statement is an assurance that the interpretation that God is going to give will actually turn out to be favorable for Pharaoh. Literally, the Hebrew is God will answer the peace of Pharaoh. This is an expression of fearless 
confidence on Joseph's part that God will give an answer that will pacify Pharaoh's disturbed spirit and lead to the peace or the shalom of Pharaoh. Now, if Joseph was interested in only his personal advancement, he would have never said, it is not in me. And he would have never deflected glory to God the way that he does here. This is clearly a man who has been humbled by 13 years of slavery and imprisonment and dashed dreams. A man who here now refuses to take credit or to brag about what he can do, but who quickly deflects all glory to God for what he's able to do. How do you respond when someone compliments you on some ability that you have? Do you give the glory to God or do you take that glory to yourself? Well, Joseph is very swift to even speak a corrective to the Pharaoh saying, no, 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 it's not in me, but it's God who gives me this ability. Also, I love the fact that Joseph doesn't try in this moment to manipulate the situation to his own personal advantage. Think about what you would have done in this very situation. Once he hears that Pharaoh needs an interpretation and wants it very badly, Joseph could have realized the monetary value of the interpretation of the Pharaoh's dreams and the monetary value that Pharaoh would place upon getting the interpretation to his dreams. Joseph could have said, Pharaoh, I I will give you the interpretation of your dreams if you will promise me in advance that you will free me from prison or give to me a particular sum of money or if you promise me in advance that you will hear my grievances and ways that I have been wronged and that you would hear my case and give me a fair trial. Joseph could have responded that way and tried to get that kind of agreement before he gave the interpretation of the Pharaoh's dreams, but he doesn't do any of that as we're going to see. He simply here gives to the Pharaoh an assurance that God will provide an interpretation of the Pharaoh's dreams that will lead to the peace of Pharaoh. As for himself and his own well-being and his own future, Joseph is simply going to serve the Pharaoh here and trust God with whatever outcome God has ordained for him. This is amazing. Having heard these particular words from Joseph, Pharaoh is ready to tell his dreams and have Joseph interpret them This leads us to the fourth development in this story of how God brings Joseph from prison to power in Egypt. Number four, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams and confesses once again his inability to find the meaning of them. Observe what Pharaoh does beginning in verse 17. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. And here's what he said. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all of the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. And then in verse 21, we learn a detail that we did not hear the first time that this dream was told to us earlier in the chapter. Pharaoh says, yet when they, the skinny cows and the ugly ones, when they had devoured them, the fat and sleek cows, it could not be detected that they had devoured them for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke, he says. He continues in verse 22. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. 
And lo, seven ears, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. Pharaoh then confesses his frustration. At the end of verse 24, he says, Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. This is now the second confession of inability that the Pharaoh makes to Joseph. We don't know after Joseph heard these words from Pharaoh, if he spoke right away or if he took some time to pray and commune with God about it. But eventually Joseph speaks, which leads us to the fifth development in this story of how God brings Joseph from prison to power in Egypt. Number five, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Observe what Joseph does beginning in verse 25. The text says, now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Notice how Joseph puts the focus on God here. He's already said that it is God who will provide the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. But now here he's telling Pharaoh that the dreams themselves are from God and that they are a means through which God is communicating to Pharaoh what God himself is about to do in the coming years. And the first thing that Joseph does is he explains the meaning of the specific items that show up in the dream, providing the keys basically to unlock the meaning of the dream. Observe how he does this in verses 26 and 27. He says, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. Once Joseph explains that the sevens represent years, he has just provided the key that unlocks the interpretation to Pharaoh's dreams telling him that the sevens mean years and that the dreams are one and the same. You put those two details together and those are the keys that unlock the meaning of these dreams. And so Joseph now officially provides the interpretation of this dream that was dreamed in two phases. He says in verse 28, it is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. Notice Joseph's terminology. The seven years of famine will be so bad that they will quickly cause everyone to forget the prior seven years of plenty. The famine will ravage the land and the famine will be very severe or literally be very bad. So bad that people won't even remember the seven years of plenty that preceded the seven years of this awful long famine. Joseph then tells Pharaoh why he has had the same dream twice. Look at verse 32. He says, now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Again, notice Joseph's focus on God. He's not afraid to speak of God in the presence of Pharaoh. He's told Pharaoh that the ability to interpret dreams comes from God. 
He's told him that the dreams are a message from God about what God intends to do. And now he tells Pharaoh that the repetition of his dream means two things. Number one, that what is foretold in the dream has been determined by God. And number two, that God will quickly be bringing it about. In other words, the beginning of the fulfillment of these dreams is starting very soon. And there's no time to waste. It is at this point that Joseph goes beyond what Pharaoh has asked of him and does a very risky thing. He gives Pharaoh some unsolicited advice that he did not ask for as to what the Pharaoh must do in order to handle these upcoming events in a way that leads to the peace or the shalom of Pharaoh. And this leads us to the sixth development in this story of how God brings Joseph from prison to power in Egypt. Number six, Joseph counsels Pharaoh to implement a plan to handle the foretold events of abundance and then famine. Essentially, Joseph gives Pharaoh four categories of instruction And the first is to establish men who will lead the project of seeing Egypt through the next 14 years. In verses 33 and 34, Joseph says to the Pharaoh, he says, Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. I would agree with commentators who say that there is no way that as Joseph gives this advice to the Pharaoh that he is thinking in his wildest dreams that Pharaoh would end up choosing him. Nor is Joseph here trying to hint at that. Joseph was a foreigner, a prisoner who stood accused of sexually assaulting an Egyptian woman who was the wife of one of Pharaoh's own men. Joseph has never held any kind of public office before. And we know from Joseph's earlier statement that it's not in him to interpret dreams, but it's God who provides that. Joseph is not trying to do some covert advancing of himself here. He's not trying to assert himself as the man Pharaoh should choose. Joseph offers this counsel only because he thinks this is precisely what Pharaoh should do to appoint a discerning man who will administrate this matter of seeing Egypt through the next 14 years of feast and famine. But according to Joseph's counsel, Pharaoh will need to do more than that. In verse 34, Joseph says, let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Joseph is counseling Pharaoh to put a man in charge of managing this whole matter and then to appoint men who will serve underneath that man on the crisis team covering the whole land of Egypt. Joseph's second category of counsel and advice is at the end of verses 34 and 35. Listen to what he says. And let him, Pharaoh, exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. A fifth of all of the produce. What percentage is that? 20%. Ancient records indicate that tithing, which is 10%, was practiced in Egypt and in other nations like Israel in this part of the world of this day. And here is Joseph advising Pharaoh to double the tithe to 20% of the people's produce that they will give to the government during these seven years of plenty. A double tithe of 20% would be unusual but no one would really complain about a 20% tax when the harvests are so plentiful anyway. During these seven years of abundance, the people are going to have no trouble making a living off of the 80% that they are allowed to keep. 
The plan that Joseph is presenting here calls for those in charge of this enterprise to gather all of the produce that is brought in and to store that produce up and to guard them during the seven years of plenty. Joseph's next area of instruction is regarding what to do with the food that is gathered. Look at verse 36. He says to the Pharaoh, let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Or in other words, so that the people of the land won't perish. He's saying, if you don't do what I am saying here, then people are going to die during the seven years of famine that will follow the seven years of abundance. It's a risky thing to go giving unsolicited advice to Pharaoh, but Joseph does, and it pays off. Observe Pharaoh's response in verse 37. The text says, now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh. Literally, it was good in his eyes and to all of his servants. So it seems that even Pharaoh's wise men and magicians and the Pharaoh himself are all agreed that this is the right thing for them to do. So Pharaoh swings into action, and this leads us to the final development in the story of how God brings Joseph from prison to power in Egypt. Number seven, Pharaoh puts Joseph in power over the land of Egypt. The first word of counsel that Joseph gave to Pharaoh was to look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. We saw that in verse 33. Observe how Pharaoh responds to Joseph's advice in verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? Literally, in whom is the spirit of Elohim, the spirit of God, the God that Joseph has been speaking about repeatedly. Pharaoh is pointing to Joseph here. And he's clearly persuaded that Joseph's wisdom is a supernatural wisdom that has come directly from the spirit of God who is within him. And Pharaoh is saying, is there any other man that we could find who would be like Joseph in whom dwells the spirit of Elohim? Observe what Pharaoh then says to Joseph in verse 39, the text says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning as, and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. The expression, the Hebrew expression that is translated according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Literally in the Hebrew reads this way, all my people shall kiss your mouth. Speaking of them paying homage to every word that falls from the mouth of Joseph. Pharaoh says that even he himself will do Joseph's Bidding, except for those occasions when he is operating in his function as the Pharaoh of Egypt. He says, only in the throne will I be greater than you. And observe how Pharaoh carries through on his words here. In verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then... Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. This is a breathtaking bestowal of power here. Pharaoh's signet ring was the ring that bore his unique emblem that he would use to sign official documents that he would stamp into hardened clay, leaving his image. It was his signature. And he's literally taking this ring off and he's giving it to Joseph, giving him his signature 
essentially to sign whatever orders he wants to sign. And those orders will be as if they came from the Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's not saying, hey, bring whatever orders you want to make to me and I'll sign them. It's like, no, here's my ring. You go ahead and sign whatever you think is appropriate to sign. And it will be viewed as coming from the Pharaoh himself. He also gives Joseph clothing appropriate to royalty, dressing him in garments of fine linen. He also put the, the gold necklace around his neck. And this was not just any gold necklace, but the gold necklace. This would be at least the equivalent of our presidential medal of freedom that our president bestows upon certain people to honor them, but it also would have served as a symbol of royal power that Pharaoh is now sharing with Joseph. Pharaoh also uh, provides Joseph the transportation he needs. Look at verse 43. He had him ride in his second chariot. Uh, the presidential limousine in our country is called Cadillac One. So what Pharaoh is doing here is letting Joseph ride in his Cadillac Two or Air Force Two. And as Joseph rode in what we can call Chariot Two, the text says in verse 43, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. So as he's riding in this chariot, there are runners who are running in front of him and announcing his coming to all who were around and commanding them to bow the knee to Joseph. And he, Pharaoh, set him, Joseph, over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. This is very strong language. This is Pharaoh's way of saying that though Joseph is underneath him, the Pharaoh, Joseph's power in Egypt from this day forward will be unbridled and absolute. Pharaoh here is essentially making Joseph the dictator over all of Egypt, excluding only Pharaoh himself. There's only one more thing that Joseph would need to make this transfer of power complete. Right now, Joseph is a foreigner. He's a Hebrew with a Hebrew name. And the Egyptians had certain racial prejudices against foreigners, especially foreigners who are put in positions over them. So Pharaoh addresses that in a couple ways that we see in verse 25. First of all, he Egyptianizes Joseph by giving Joseph an Egyptian name. Look at verse 45. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zephanath-Paneah. Zephanath-Paneah. It's actually hard to know for sure what this name means. Some say it means abundance of life. Others say it means God speaks and lives. Some say it means creator or sustainer of life. Others suggest that its meaning is revealer of hidden things. Who knows what this name means? The important thing is that the Pharaoh is giving to Joseph an Egyptian name. And Pharaoh's the one bestowing that. And that's the key. But Pharaoh does one more thing that we see in the second half of verse 45. The text says, and he gave him Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, as his wife. The city of On was later called Heliopolis, which means Sun City. We have our own Sun City here in Southern California. It was seven miles north of modern day Cairo. The city was the third most sacred city in the land of Egypt throughout its history. And the Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna says that the high priest of On held the exalted title greatest of seers. So in giving Joseph Asenath, the daughter of the priest 
of own, Pharaoh is seeing to it that Joseph is marrying into the elite of Egyptian religious nobility. Now that Pharaoh has given Joseph an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife, everyone throughout the land of Egypt in the years to come will have good reason to accept Joseph as one of their own. And they would know that Joseph is truly invested in the well-being of Egypt. And by giving Joseph the daughter of the priest of the city of On, Pharaoh is seeing to it that everyone would know that to disrespect Joseph would be to arouse the wrath of a priest who represented them in religious matters. What Pharaoh does here is profoundly shrewd from beginning to end, and it provides Joseph with absolutely all that he needs to soar and succeed in his role as vice regent to Pharaoh over all the land of Egypt in the years to come. And with all of these things bestowed upon Joseph, verse 45 ends with the words, and Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. And we'll stop here for today. What a difference a day makes, right? And the difference maker in Joseph's case is God. At the beginning of this particular day, Joseph was an unpresentable, unshaved prisoner in a dungeon. By day's end, he is the second most powerful man in all the land of Egypt and maybe even the world of his day. What thoughts must have gone through Joseph's mind as he lay on a new bed at the end of this particular day, pondering all that had transpired in the previous 24 hours How amazed he must have been at the sovereign power of God to work on his behalf, taking him from prison to this amazing position of power and glory in the land of Egypt. Guys, never underestimate God's power to exalt his people at the proper time. When you remain faithful to him and trust him, to exalt you at the proper time. When the Bible tells you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, you should be encouraged that God really knows how to exalt when the proper time comes. And we see that here in this chapter. God is in the business of exalting the lowly. And he's been doing that throughout history He elevated Israel from nothingness to being a mighty nation. He took David from being a shepherd boy in his father's house to being king over all of Israel with a house that will endure forever. He took a poor girl from Nazareth and made her the mother of the Messiah, causing her, Mary, to extol God's power to exalt the lowly when she says in Luke 1, Verses 51 and 52, that he, God, has done mighty deeds with his arm and has exalted those who were humble or lowly. And we know from Scripture that God took his son, Jesus Christ, allowed him to be born in a stable and raised in Nazareth and allowed him to suffer the agonies of death upon a cross. Yet we're told in Scripture that God raised his son from the dead And in Philippians 2, we're told that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it's this God who exalted his son in this way who promises to exalt us if we will humble ourselves before him. If we try to exalt ourselves before God, he will bring us low. But if we humble ourselves before him, he will exalt us far higher than we could have ever achieved on our own. And one day, those of us who believe in in Jesus will come into our own as sons of God, fully redeemed 
dressed in fine linen, we learn in the book of Revelation, and fully glorified with an exaltation that will make Joseph's exaltation look like child's play. And the certain knowledge that we have as Christians of this future glorification or exaltation gives us perspective during our present seasons of waiting in the valleys of life. Knowing of our coming exaltation helps us to not grow bitter in the midst of trials, but to remain faithful and trusting and to stay surrendered to God knowing that God is all wise. He knows what he's doing and he knows how to exalt us when the proper time comes. But we must learn to let God humble us before he exalts us, right? It's easy to let him exalt us. But when that same God says, let me humble you first, we're not ready to sign up for that. But that's what 1 Peter 5, 6 is all about. Sometimes we feel the mighty hand of God upon us and we're initially excited by that. Wow, the hand of God is on me. But then we feel that very hand of God weighing heavy upon us and man, it's getting kind of heavy and my goodness, it's actually pushing me down lower and lower And our tendency is to resist that lowering and to push up against it. But Peter literally is saying, let yourself be lowered under the mighty hand of God. Let that lowering happen because the very hand that right now today is lowering you is the hand that will one day lift you up and exalt you. That's what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. And to his credit, Joseph has allowed himself to be humbled by God. And we see glimpses of that humbling in our passage today. Thirteen years prior, Joseph twice went to his brothers saying, hey, guys, I had an amazing dream. I dreamed that you guys bowed down to me. He didn't seem to have the sense to know that's just not you don't go saying that to people. And shortly thereafter, he was brought low. But 13 years later, we see Joseph standing before Pharaoh and Pharaoh tries to compliment him. And he's like, it's not in me. It's not in me. But it's in God to give the interpretation of dreams. Joseph clearly is in a very different place than he was 13 years prior. His years of suffering and being forgotten had seasoned him with the Humility that readied him now for the exaltation that God is wanting to bring his way. I love what one writer says. Listen to this. He says, The external change in Joseph's circumstances is astonishing, but his character has undergone a remarkable transformation as well. He is no longer the brash teenager whose careless chatter annoyed everyone. Now Joseph is intelligent and wise without peer in Egypt. The veil of tears has proved to be the valley of soul making. And if you're in the valley of tears right now, let that valley also be the valley of soul making. God is there in that valley with you and he's working on your character to prepare you for whatever exaltation is going to come your way at the proper time. While we're at it, let me just point out as we wrap things up this morning that even Pharaoh teaches something about humility in our passage today. In Egyptian theology, the Pharaoh was a divine being, an incarnation of God, But God shattered Pharaoh's smugness with nightmares and Pharaoh found himself helpless and bankrupt to interpret these nightmares. But when the cupbearer gave Pharaoh the good news, the gospel of a Hebrew slave in a dungeon who had power to help him, Pharaoh was willing to look to that Hebrew slave in a prison for help. As king over Egypt, Pharaoh could have been offended at the thought 
of asking a Hebrew convict for help, but he wasn't offended. He swiftly called for this lowly Hebrew to be brought to him. And Pharaoh immediately confessed to this Hebrew convict his lack of wisdom and his bankruptcy of resources to interpret his dreams. And then he asked this Hebrew slave for help. This is an astounding thing for a powerful man like Pharaoh to do, to admit his need and to humbly look to this lowly Hebrew for help. But because he was willing to do that, God came through for Pharaoh and gave Pharaoh an answer that ultimately led to Pharaoh's shalom. The Bible teaches us that all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible also tells us about a Hebrew named Jesus who died upon a cross and who was buried in a tomb. And the Bible tells us that God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand and that the answer to all of our problems lies in this one whose name is Jesus. Will you call for this Jesus? Will you admit your bankruptcy to him? Will you listen to him as he gives you the interpretation of all of reality? Will you listen to him as he counsels you as to what you need to do to prepare for the future in this life and in the life to come? Will you go even further than Pharaoh did with Joseph and step off the throne completely of your own life and surrender complete lordship over to this Hebrew named Jesus? If you do, I can promise you on the authority of God's word that you will experience the peace, the shalom that God offers. And one day you will experience an exaltation that is far higher than anything you could ever have achieved on your own. God is far better at exalting you than you ever will be at exalting yourself. And he will exalt all those who believe in his son and clothe them with immortality and glory when they're revealed as sons of God and the age to come. And when that exaltation comes for you and for me, for all of us who believe in Jesus, we're going to say what a, what a difference a day makes. And the difference maker is not us, but it's God. And to him be all of the glory. Amen. Let's pray to this wonderful God this morning. Lord, you are beautiful beyond description. Your wisdom is inscrutable. Your ways are past our finding out, but you wonderfully and graciously choose to reveal to us what it is that you want us to understand. All of us, Lord, deep in our bones, apart from Christ, we wanted to act like little gods. We thought so highly of ourselves, but you have shattered the smugness of so many of us in this room and caused us to look to Jesus, and we have found shalom in him. I pray if there's any here this morning, Lord, that have never found peace through Christ, that they would lay their pride aside, that they would denounce their pride and humble themselves before Jesus and let Jesus be their Lord and Savior. Help all of us to do that each day, even those of us who know you. Some in our church, Lord, are going through difficult times. They are in the valley of tears. And we pray, Lord, that that veil of tears would be the valley of soul making for them. Mold and shape their souls in such a way that your beauty emanates from them and they are seasoned and humbled with grace and wisdom that readies them for 
the good that you intend to bring their way in this life and in the life to come. But give us a sound perspective, whether we are in a place, a lowly place in the valley right now or in a place of exaltation and blessing, wherever may we give glory to you and be humble and simply seek to serve you and your purposes in our lives and in the lives of others. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity also to give of our offerings to you, receive these funds, do much with all that is given in this offering for the glory of our amazing Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said,